The Old Testament reading this morning is from Genesis 1:26 through chapter 2, verse 25. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there is evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second ribbon is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. The psalm this morning is Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 10, and verse 22, and chapter 22, verse 5. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. 
And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks. Our gospel lesson this morning is from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with the disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill those jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they did. When the master of the feast tasted this water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then once people have drunk freely, then they serve the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of the signs. Jesus did a cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. If you brought a Bible today, please open it to Genesis 2. This was a long reading, and try as I might, it's a long sermon. So if you have little kids that need a break at some point in time, please feel free to go take a break. If you're an adult that feels the need to take a break, go take a break. Um, The reason it's long is because I, I believe that Genesis 2 is one of the most foundational passages in Scripture. Genesis 1 tells the story of creation, how everything came into being, how God literally spoke, 
and, and, and everything came from nothing. But Genesis 2 does a little bit the same thing, but it also, it not only talks about where we came from, but it starts to hint at where everything is going. And there are so many places throughout the rest of Scripture that picks up on the themes that we see here. It is so easy if you're a Christian, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, um, at certain parts of the Bible, you can kind of hopscotch over a bunch of stuff and just get to the stuff that you've heard before, get to the stuff that you know is there, that you've heard preached on. And so it is so easy to read Genesis 2 and kind of skip to the part at the end where God forms Eve out of the rib of Adam, and then they have this beautiful wedding ceremony. And this, this passage at the end of Genesis 2 is actually quoted by Jesus himself. And it's in our wedding liturgy as well. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then the bit that goes, therefore, a, a man shall leave his mother and his father and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the part that a lot of people like to go to. If you skip right to that end of it, you've missed the bulk of the chapter. So, it's really easy to skip over the first part of Genesis, but we're, the first part of Genesis 2, but we're not going to. And when you read it in light of what we heard last week in Genesis 1, you start to see some interesting things about who God is and who we're made to be. Now, this is a passage in the Bible, especially when you take Genesis 1 and 2 together, this is a passage in the Bible that, um, that people, skeptics, atheists, would love to point to and say, look at this, read Genesis 1 and then read Genesis 2. Your stupid book doesn't make any sense at all. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 are telling two different stories of theoretically the same thing. The only thing is, in order for this to be true, that chapter 1 and chapter 2 are telling two different stories, in order for that to be true, the writers of the Bible, the compilers of the Bible, the priests in the temple, the teachers in the synagogue, everyone who, has ever, who this Bible has ever passed through their hands, they would have to be really stupid. Because it's clearly obvious the differences between chapter 1 and chapter 2, but people love to point to this and say, this literally makes no sense. This must have just been thrown together by a person with a blindfold on. But if we start to see some of the things that really are different, it kind of tells us what God is trying to say about who we are and who we're made to be. A um, couple differences. In Genesis 1, water comes before the dry land, and plants come after both of those things. And human beings come last. But listen to how Genesis 2 starts out. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, a mist was going out from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It's telling the same event from two different perspectives, using two very different lenses to make two different points. Genesis 1 tells the story of everything coming from nothing. Genesis 1 moves from chaos into order as God further and further imprints his character into his creation. And it culminates at the very end with these viceroys, these stewards, these image bearers being the last thing that God makes, mankind. From chaos to order, with God continuing to imprint himself more and more in his creation. That's Genesis 1. Genesis 1 tells a story of seven days. Genesis 2 
is just one long day. And it doesn't start with the, the chaos waters from Genesis 1. It starts with a desert that has no water. In Genesis 1, human beings come last because this is being told from a cosmic perspective. In Genesis 2, human beings come first and they are very much at the center of it because everything here is being told from an earthly perspective. And so you can look at this and you can say, what is God up to by telling us these two different stories? Well, Genesis 1 was telling a theological story. Genesis 2 is telling a missional story and a vocational story. Genesis 2 is the very first instance of an image that will carry on throughout the rest of the Bible all the way up to the end of it in Revelation 22 that we just heard. Because Genesis 2 is about the idea of God's temple. Because Eden was a temple and Adam was its first priest. If that seems weird to you, just stay with me. I didn't make this up, but I actually fully buy into the idea. Because not only does it help this passage make sense, but it helps so many other passages in the Bible make sense, and it helps us make sense of what we're supposed to be in our lives. Look with me at, at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as well. Important thing to note, with a close reading of this text, if you actually read what it says, this garden was not named Eden. We always think of it as the Garden of Eden. The garden was not named Eden. The garden was in a place called Eden. It was a part of Eden. And Eden was the first temple. And Adam was its first priest. He didn't have fancy robes or a funny hat or a delightful stole. He didn't have all the, the purity laws and the ceremonial laws of the Israelite priests. But later on in the Bible, we're told that when they made the tabernacle and then they, later the temple, that it was specifically patterned on things to look like Eden. So at the very least, Eden was the pattern for the temple. But if we dig deeper, we see that Adam is given the exact same task here in Genesis 2 that later on God would give to the Israelite priests. It's easy to look at specific words in the Bible and see where else they've been used, but words can mean different things in different places. It's even more helpful to look at phrases. So, in verse 15, it said, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to keep it, and I'm sorry, to work it and to keep it. Work and keep. Other translations say that he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it, or to cultivate it and to keep it. And basically, it's these two words, abad and samar. Work and keep. Work and guard might actually be a better translation. Abad and samar, to work and to guard. Think of those two things. This phrase, this exact phrase, abad and samar, to work and to guard, is later used to describe the job of the priests in the tabernacle in Numbers 3. It's later used to describe the, the job of the priests in the temple in 1 Chronicles 23. It was literally the priestly role that was given to people to cultivate and to guard. This stuff inside, the stuff in the temple, needs to be cared for so that it can flourish and so that it can eventually transform the stuff outside from something neutral or something harmful into something beautiful. This stuff inside has to be cultivated and guarded so that it can eventually fulfill its mission of transforming what was outside. We see this 
this temple imagery picked up other places. There's a garden in the middle of this place called Eden, and a river flows right through the middle of it to bring life-giving water to the whole world. In Ezekiel 47, a river is in the middle of the temple, and it flows out of it to bring life-giving water to the whole world. There was a river of water and blood flowing out of the side of Jesus, probably, oh, right about where his rib would have been, to bring life to the whole world. And then as we heard in Revelation 22, a river flowing out of New Jerusalem, right through the center of the city. The final temple, the dwelling place of God with his whole church, a river flowing right out of that to bring life-giving water to the whole world. So the picture that we're seeing in Genesis 2 is the idea that Eden was a temple and Adam was its priest. And he needed help. He needed co-workers. As I said, a, a lot gets made about this passage about men and women and the role of husbands and wives. And, and you can make a lot about in, in this chapter about men and women. There's the idea of headship and representation, both of which get back to a really great concept of interdependence. We are not meant as human beings, especially as husbands and wives, we are not meant to be independent from one another. But we also aren't meant to be codependent with one another. We're made to be interdependent with one another. Paul talks about this very thing in 1 Corinthians 11, referencing Genesis 2. He says, Woman is not independent of man or man of woman. For as woman was made out of man, so now man is born out of woman, and all things are from God. So the interdependence that men and women have together is a great thing to pull from Genesis 2. But it's not what the whole book, it's not what the whole chapter is about. Everything else in creation was called into existence by God speaking, and it happened. But mankind was made out of the dirt of the earth. He was formed out of an existing creation. He is tied to it. He's interdependent with it. He's a part of it. There's kind of an idea in some parts of the Christian faith that says, you know, this world's all going to get burned up anyway when God calls us all up to heaven, so... We don't really need to worry all that much about the stuff of this world. But Genesis 2 would correct that. We are formed from the things of this world. God's unique image bearers are intrinsically tied to his creation. And as men and women, especially as husbands and wives, we are intrinsically interdependent with one another. And you can hear Genesis 2 being talked about as the first wedding ceremony. And God is the first officiant at the first marriage. And that's true. It is true. But it's not the main point. It's only the culmination of what we've heard before. Because Adam and Eve were at heart a workplace romance. Because God had already formed man. He had already placed him in this temple garden. And before Adam and Eve were together, they had, God had already given them work. When Adam was looking for a helper fit for himself, and none was found in all of creation, what what kind of help could he possibly have needed? Did he need help around the house? Did he need... He needed help in the work that God had given him to do. He needed help in the image-bearing work of tending and keeping, of, of cultivating and guarding, of filling the earth and subduing it. And while I believe that, that the male headship in the home and in the church is unashamedly put forward in the Bible, I think it's important to note here that the, the, the helper that God talks about 
in verse 18 is not a sidekick. We don't hear about Adam and Adam's assistant. Sometimes when, when, when Gus tries to help us rake leaves or shovel snow, you know, it's like you kind of bend down and you go, that's so sweet, you're helping. You're such a good helper. That's not this. There is nothing diminutive or secondary about this role of helper. The word helper or, or ezer, it occurs 21 times in the Old Testament. Two of them here in this passage talking about Eve. Three of them are talking about the huge uh, empires around Israel that they called upon for help when they couldn't get it done by themselves. And the other 16 times that this word ezer or helper is used in the Old Testament, it's literally talking about God. It's talking about someone that has to come and participate because we can't get this done on our own. And so more often than not, this Ezer that we look for is God. He is our help. He is the one who comes alongside us in our helplessness. The one that we need, the one we can't do without, the one that actually makes this possible. That's the kind of help that Eve was bringing to Adam. So, helper. An essential component, a, a, a godsend. For Adam, the task that he had been given to be a priest in this garden temple, in this place of Eden, and to fill the whole earth, to take, to take possession of it, to, to have dominion over it, to exercise authority over the whole world in the exact same way that he was exercising authority over this garden, it could not have been done without his ezer, his helper. Adam could not do what he was asked to do without Eve. And so this was very much a workplace romance. Their togetherness was born out of mission, not the other way around. This is why we say in our church that marriage itself is actually missional. That marriage is part of God's plan for the thriving of his creation and the work of God in this world. And it's why we say that God calls us to actually have missional, outward-facing marriages that are focused on blessing the world around us through our union. Adam and Eve had a mission and a role, and their marriage flowed out of that. Because while at the end of Genesis 1, we see that God was done with his work of creation, we know that God is never done with his work of mission. So, all of this history, this great story about this garden temple and the first priest, what does this mean for us today? Well, first and foremost, it helps show us where we came from. That's always valuable. And it reminds us what we are made for. We didn't participate in creation. That was all God's work. But we do participate in mission. To see that a little more clearly, let me talk to you for a minute about water. So, God is the creator. And God, at the end of Genesis 1, was done with his work of creation, and he called it very good, and he rested. In Genesis 1, he tamed the chaos waters that were swirling in this new tohu and bohu, formless and void creation. And now, in Genesis 2, he has caused that same water to come up out of the earth as a life-giving spring. In the ESV translation, it says that there was a mist that was watering the ground. But a better translation might be spring because it's the exact same word. The water from Genesis 1, this same water that the Spirit of God had hovered over, covering it like a mother bird. That same water was now tamed by God and put to use for his purposes. 
God was using it for the flourishing of his creation. So this life-giving water comes up out of a spring. It meets the dirt of the dry land. And what happens when water and dirt meet? They make mud. So the water comes out, it hits the dry land, and it makes Adama. It makes mud. And so out of this Adama, God forms Adam. But that was not the only work of this life-giving water. The life-giving water out of this spring became a river of life. It becomes a river that flows, that waters the garden and then flows out of the garden. Splits in four directions and becomes the, ri- the rivers that will water the entire world. This part always confused me when I read it. This is one of those parts of the Bible where it, maybe you're not this way, you might be better than I am. There's a lot of times when I'm reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and you get to a list of names or a list of places. And here's my impression of me reading a list of names or places. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and came, became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of... Uh, Oh, gosh. Okay, what do we got here? And I really have to push through. So this first river called the Pishon flowed all around the land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Okay, I've now read all that. I don't know what a Pishon is. I don't know where Havilah is. I don't need gold. I've never mined for delium or onyx. I'm dimly aware of where Cush is. That's about what I've got. And I've heard of the Tigris and the Euphrates. I know they're somewhere. So the center part of this chapter, if you look at this chapter, the center hunk of it, talking about this water of life and then giving details about where it's going, I don't know why it's there. The question is, what does any of this really mean? Here's what it means. It means that the goodness of God was existing to feed his temple and to feed his priest and to feed his garden. To grow its garden, to grow his garden and his gardeners. And then, out of that goodness, these same waters of life continued to overflow, and to bring this fruit-bearing, life-giving water to the rest of the world. This is the pattern. This is the pattern that we see established in Genesis, and then, spoiler for next week, twisted by the fall, but then recaptured in the kingdom of Israel and rediscovered by the prophets, and then finally and fully encapsulated and enacted by Jesus in his life, in his death, his resurrection, his sending of the Holy Spirit, and the founding of his church. God's people were always, always, from back in the Garden of Eden, meant to be a blessing to the world around them. And these rivers that are being talked about is the start of it. Because these four rivers, flowing out of this spring in the Garden Temple of of Eden, they actually go to some pretty interesting places. One river, the first one, goes toward Egypt passing right through the land where Ishmael would later dwell. One goes toward Cush, which is probably northeastern Africa. 
but it also flowed right through a spot in Jerusalem. Because later, there would become a spring in Jerusalem called the Gihon. The third and the fourth rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, are associated with two of Israel's major enemies and antagonists of the Old Testament, Assyria and Babylon. And so God's goodness flows out of his temple, first for his people, who are then called to partner with God in this work that God is doing in his creation, this work of being a blessing to the whole world, even to the enemies of the people of God. It's not like in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, it's not like Jesus just made up on the spot the idea of loving your enemies and blessing those who curse you. His speech in in the Sermon on the Mount has its roots all the way back here in Genesis 2, the very beginning of our story. The waters of God flowing out from the temple of God to nourish the whole world, even those who would later oppress and enslave the people of God. Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. All part of the plan. And it's easy for us to look at this picture of Eden with, with its garden temple and Adam as its priest. We can look at this before the fall and we can see perfection. Everything was in a complete state of bliss and then humans being screwed it up. But that's not actually how it was. Because it wasn't complete. Perfection implies completeness. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project put it this way, Inside Eden, the garden was not any more perfect than the first five minutes of an amazing movie are perfect. Because it's not complete. It's only the start of the story. The key difference between Genesis 1 and 2 at the beginning of the Bible and Revelation 21 and 22 at the end of the Bible is this. At the beginning, God and mankind are in potential partnership. But at the end of things, after God enters into his creation, after God intervenes on our behalf, after he becomes the the ezer, the helper that we could never deserve, after the life, death, resurrection, and reign of King Jesus, after that, at the end of all things, the partnership with God is perfect. And so that role that Adam and Eve have, the idea of being priests in this garden temple, it is our role too. And it's not just mine because I'm wearing this. It is all of our role. All of, our, all of us are called to be this. Adam had a priestly function in God's first temple. God called him and God set him apart. And God gave him a mission. And each of us, as as children of Abraham, as part of God's covenant family, chosen and set aside. The Bible tells us that we are all part of a kingdom of priests. Exodus talks about this. Isaiah talks about this. And 1 Peter puts a bow on this and makes it unmistakable, unmistakable that even in the new covenant time, that we are all a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so each one of us has this mission of guarding and keeping and blessing the nations. Each one of us has a role of guarding and keeping and blessing the nations. In order to do that, we need to be fed and cleansed by this life-giving water that was flowing out of the middle of the temple. And when we are in Christ, we have been. When we are in Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life. And each of you, each one of you, when Christ is in you, you yourselves are a temple unto the Lord. 
And so, like the garden in the midst of this Eden temple, you yourselves now get to bear fruit. You get to bear much fruit that is delightful to the eye and pleasing to eat. You needed to be cleansed and sanctified and set apart by the same Holy Spirit that covered over the waters. And you have been transformed into a temple of the Lord. And and like that garden, it is now time for us to bear fruit. This is why it's called the, the fruit of the Spirit. Because once you have the Holy Spirit, you are part. You are a part of this Eden project that God has given to his, his image bearers. To Adam, to Eve, to everyone who came after them. And we can't do it alone. None of us can. Adam couldn't, and he got to be in the very presence of God all the time. None of us can do this alone. But God will always give us an Ezer. He will always give us a helper. We will always have one another, and we will always have the ultimate helper, the one without whom, and the one without whom none of this is possible, but with whom everything is possible. He gives us the ultimate helper because he gives us himself. Trust in that promise as you do the work that he has given you to do. And as we reflect not only on where we've come from in Genesis 2, but where this is all going, heading from this river of life flowing out of a garden in the midst of a temple, going all the way to the end of Revelation, when the perfect city, the new Jerusalem, descends. And in the midst of that city, which itself is a temple, in the midst of that city is a garden and a river of life flowing out of it, bringing life to all the nations. Because by that point, the gospel will have covered the world as the waters covered the sea. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be streaming into this temple to be in the very presence of God forever. That's where we've come from, and that's where we're going. And in the meantime, we do this work of cultivating and guarding together. Let me pray. God, I ask you to bless your people this week. As we, as we participate in the, in, in the small, mundane, everyday ways, and we participate in the mission of, of God in your creation, I pray that you would bless your people, that you would use them to be a blessing to others, and that while we're doing this work, you would keep us strong, that you would keep us encouraged, and that you would keep us together. In Christ's name, amen.